Well, if you've been with us, uh, hopefully you were with us Christmas Eve or maybe right after that. We gave out these reading plans. We've got more if you didn't pick one up. It's called the 5 by 5 by 5 reading plan. It actually came from the Navigators. Uh, we borrowed from them. We came up with our own questions, though. But uh, what I love about it is it's basically one chapter a day in the New Testament, just five days a week. Each reading should take about five minutes. It's only about one chapter. And then we have five questions we encourage you to ask of the text as you read it each day. And so the first question is, what verse stood out to you as you read this chapter of Scripture as you read? You know, you might underline a word or phrase that stands out to you or a couple of verses. Why do you think these verses stood out to you in particular? What does this chapter uh, tell us about God? What is the overall emphasis of this chapter of Scripture? And how are we called to live in light of this chapter of Scripture? We always want to ask that of the Scriptures. So you read God's Word. What does it say about God? And what does it say about how I'm called to live in light of, of who God is? And, and as I was reading through this uh, reading plan, I got to Mark 4 on Thursday because we're just, you know, one chapter a day. Mark 4 was January 4th because we started on January 1. And I read about how the parable of the sowers, which is a story I've read many times. But what impressed me that time as I read it this time was how the person, which Jesus explains that the seed is the Word of God, the fertile soil, the person who has an open heart to God's word, produces 30, 60, 100 times that which was planted. I know that as followers of Jesus, we want to be fruitful Christians, bearing 100 times that which was planted. And of course, you read that story, the, the sower is kind of sloppy, right? He's throwing seeds on places where there's no chance that their seed's going to grow there, like on rocky soil or among the weeds. They'll never grow there. But he knows that the one seed that falls in the healthy soil, the heart that's really open to the Word of God, will produce 30, 60, 100 times that which was, which was planted. And so I know that we want to be those kind of Christians who, who plant, uh, who, who produce 100 times that which was planted. And, and while we're only reading the New Testament this year, because if you go through this reading plan, it starts in Mark. And we start with Mark because it's the first gospel written. It's the shortest gospel. And uh, then it gets to Matthew, so you can get to the long genealogy of a bunch of names. And then Luke and John, and then Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, all the way to Revelation. We'll finish uh, the New Testament on December 27th uh, of this year. So I hope you can join us in that. But we don't want to ignore the Old Testament. We know the Old Testament is very important because of what Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. Listen again to those words. He says, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If we want to be the fruit-bearing Christians that God called us to be, we need to read all of Scripture, of course, because it's all been inspired by God. And when, and when Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, it's his second letter. If you read the whole thing of 2 Timothy, you'll see that he knows he's about to die. This is his final instructions to Timothy, his son in the faith, who's helping lead the church in Ephesus. He says, hey, remember the Scriptures. If you get confused, go back to the Word of God. And when he says all Scripture, Paul, who is Jewish, Timothy, who had a Jewish mother and a Jewish grandmother, certainly he was talking about the Old Testament. So while we're all reading through the New Testament, we're going to do a, a sermon series on the Old Testament so we don't neglect the importance of the Old Testament. Specifically, we're going to look at some, some characters in the Old Testament who had a, a transformative work to do in God's kingdom uh, enterprise. In fact, you know, we think about all the great heroes of our faith. Abraham, as we just read in Matthew chapter 1, verse 2, we read, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. 
Abraham is the father of our faith. He's known for his great faith. And it's interesting, he's known as the father because he gave birth to Isaac, who gave birth to Jacob. And Jacob, of course, his name gets changed to Israel. He's the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. So Abraham's grandson was quite fruitful for the kingdom of God. He certainly had a lot of of children. But Abraham, despite the fact that his name means father of many, initially wasn't that fruitful. You see, initially when we get introduced to Abraham in Genesis chapter 11, we're told that he's married to Sarai, who is barren, and they can't have children. But then in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, God appears to Abraham, and we read these words. Now, the Lord God said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed." God tells Abram, while he's married to barren Sarah, that if he will leave his homeland and go to a land that God will show him, then he's going to make him the father of of great nations, and and all people will be blessed through his seed. Now, as you read the Genesis 12 story, and if you go home and read Genesis 12 to 22, which gives you the whole story of Abraham, which highlights what a significant character he is in the Bible because he covers so many chapters of, of Scripture, you'll find that, yes, Abraham left his homeland to go to the land that God would show him so that he might have a child. But ultimately, as we think about that story in light of the whole story of Abraham, while it took great faith to leave your homeland and your father's household, Abraham went because ultimately he was desperate. You see, Abraham in Genesis 12 is 75, and his wife is 65. The hope of having a child of their own is is long gone. There's no hope. There were no fertility clinics like we have today. And you know that if if you're a parent who ever tried or struggled to have children, you know that you'll go to any expense, any length, whatever possible to have a child. And, And Sarah and Abraham want to have children. They want to have a legacy for their name and for their family and for their faith. And so out of desperation, they follow God's call, knowing that if they stay in Haran, where the land has been barren for them, they will remain barren. But if they take a step of faith, well, what can they lose? Maybe God will give them that child that, they, that He promises to them. It took some faith, obviously, to leave the land of Haran, but Haran wasn't that great for Abraham. I'm sure he probably had some eagerness to go because it had been barren for him. They never had child. But what happens when God gives you all that you might possibly want or need, and then you're told to sacrifice it? How are we to respond? How did Abraham respond? We celebrate Abraham because God gave him a test that's unthinkable for us today, and he passed that test with flying colors. To see what that test is, I would encourage you to turn in your Red Pew Bibles to Genesis uh, chapter uh, 22, uh, beginning with verse 1. It's, I believe, on page 20 of that Red Pew Bible. Genesis chapter 22, beginning with verse 1. But before I read God's Word, let's call upon His Spirit to guide us in the reading and preaching of His Holy Word. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, I thank You so much that we have the story of Abraham to inspire us to be as faithful as he was, trusting You every step along the way. I pray, Lord, that as we read this familiar story that You might speak afresh and anew to us, that we might see how we can learn from Abraham to be as faithful as he was, giving everything up for the sake of your call. So God, I thank you, Lord, for your love. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts might be acceptable in your holy sight. 
Through your son's precious name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Genesis chapter 22, beginning with verse 1, listen to God's word. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood on the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on your boy or do anything to him, for I now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you obeyed my voice. So Abraham Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Here ends the reading of God's Word. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our Lord stands forever. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to look again at that first verse in Genesis 22, the first phrase, actually. And we read, After these things God tested Abraham. Now, it's important for us to note here that God tests Abraham. He does not tempt Abraham. He tests Abraham. And throughout Scripture, God does test His his faithful followers to see if they will have the faith needed to continue to follow. The entire wandering in the wilderness for 40 years was a a testing of the people of Israel before they went into the promised land. And, And we know that God does not tempt us because James, who is the brother of Jesus, writes in his epistle, in James chapter 1, verse 12 to 15, we read, "'Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for.'" When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has provided, promised to those who love him. Let no one say that he is tempted. I am being tempted by God, 
For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So God never tempts us. Satan tempts us. We read about that in the Gospel of Mark chapter 1. We read that first chapter, how Jesus went out of the wilderness and he was tempted by Satan uh, for 40 days. God never tempts us, but he will test us. But look at this test that God has given to Abraham. In order for us to fully appreciate this test, it helps us to understand that while in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham is 75, and he promises that if he leaves the land and goes to the land, God will show him. He'll eventually have a child, and all the nations will be blessed through his offspring. It's 25 years until Isaac is born through Sarah. Abraham had to wait a very, very long time for this child of the promise. In fact, Abraham is 100 years old. For decades, he has prayed and longed for a child, and finally he gets what he wants. And and we're told by most scholars that Isaac was probably about the age of 10 uh, because he's willing to do what his father asks. If he was a teenager, he would not have gone with his dad. But because he was 10 and still teachable, he went where his dad asked him to go. And of course, he's asking those curious questions like, hey, dad, I see that we got the wood and the fire, but where is the sacrifice? And notice Abraham, he says, God will provide uh, the lamb that is needed. But God is asking simply the impossible of Abraham to offer up his, his son, his only son, whom he loves. Why would God ask Abraham to do such a thing? After all, we know from the Ten Commandments that Thou shalt not murder is one of the Ten Commandments. And, and we even know from Deuteronomy chapter 18 that you're not supposed to sacrifice your children. This is what God says to the people of Israel before they enter into the promised land under Moses' leadership. We read, When you come into the land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not learn to follow the abom- abominable practices of those nations. There shall be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead. Forever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. God is driving the Canaanites out of Canaan, or what's current day Israel-Palestine, because they were, they were idol worshipers. And in their worship of idols, they would offer their children as sacrifices. And so God condemns that in Deuteronomy 18. He condemns it in the Ten Commandments, and yet God is asking Abraham to do the unthinkable, to sacrifice his son, his only son, whom he loves. Why is God asking Abraham to do such a thing? Well, if you were with us uh, this fall, you may know that many of us went through a, a study of this book, Timothy Keller's Counterfeit Gods, The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power, and the Only Hope That Matters. It's a great book. If you don't have it, I would highly recommend it. We've got it in our church library as well. And speaking of great books by Tim Keller, we're going to be doing a new study January 17th on his book on prayer, prayer experiencing on intimacy with God. If you want to grow in your prayer life and grow in your intimacy with God, this is a great book. We'll be discussing it January 17th at 630 in the parlor. Love to be a part of that. But in this great book by Timothy Keller, he points out that in our lives, we can make an idol of just about anything. 
even good things, like our occupation. We know that work is a gift from God, but we can make an idol of our occupation if we make it an ultimate thing that allows it to be what defines us. We can make romantic relationships idols if we make them ultimate things. Even the happiness of our children can become an idol if we make it an ultimate thing. And in this book, Counterfeit Gods, he makes reference to a great quote from St. Augustine who points out that the essence of sin is disordered love. The essence of sin is disordered love. Whenever we love anything or anyone more than God, we're guilty of, of idolatry, which is a sin. And ultimately, this test we can see from our text is not one where God really wants Isaac to, or wants Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. He's wanting to see of Abraham, Abraham, do you trust me? Do you love me more than even your son? Do we love God? Do we trust God? Do we love God more than anyone? In the Gospel of Matthew chapter 10, Jesus challenges those who are listening to him by saying a pretty tough word. He points out, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Jesus has shown his full extent of his love for all of us and that he was willing to take up a cross so that we might all be saved. And in gratitude for that love, he's calling us to love him above anything else, to not allow anything else to define us but his love and our love for him. I love the way that the Apostle Paul kind of explains this perspective in his letter to the Galatians. It's a region where he's writing to this church, this series of churches that he started. And in Galatians 2.20, Paul says this, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. As we make our way through the New Testament, we're going to read through the book of Acts and the story of the Apostle Paul. Paul originally was persecuting the church, and then God got a hold of him and opened his eyes to who Jesus really was, and he, he did a complete turnaround and began to plant churches, even at, at the risk of death of his own life. And, and he was a great church planter, and you can read his letters, and you can see that Paul did not care a whole lot about what other people thought. Paul's focus was on loving God and doing God's will. As Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, that we should seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to us or to you. The test that God is giving to Abraham in our text this morning is to see whether or not Abraham really trusts God. Does he really love God with all that he has, with all that he is? Does he love God even more than his precious son Isaac? Remarkably, Abraham does. Abraham has incredible faith. In fact, the writer of Hebrews um, tells us that it was a great act of faith that Abraham was willing to sacrifice his own son. When he explains what was going on in Abraham's mind, we read in Abra uh, Hebrews eleven seventeen to 19, it says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham had such faith in the promises of God, and God had told him that Isaac is the son of the promise, that through Isaac all the nations will be blessed. And we see that taking place in Jesus, right? The great descendant of Abraham and Isaac. That through Isaac, the son of the promise, all the nations will be blessed. So he knew that God had given him Isaac as a gift. And so if God wanted him back, then somehow God was going to to bring him even back from the dead because he knew Isaac was a son of the promise and God was faithful to keep his promises. Do we have that kind of faith? Do we trust God to keep his promises no matter what circumstances we're going through, no matter what hard times we may face? How is it possible for us to have that same kind of faith that, well, that Abraham had? How is it that Abraham had such incredible faith? I think the answer is found in Genesis 12, verse 1, where we read those initial instructions that God gave to Abraham. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. Now, for me personally, that's a little vague. I'd rather like to have a map and to know exactly where I'm going, you know, just to the land I will show you. He doesn't tell him exactly where that is. He doesn't show him a map. He doesn't tell him what the next 25 years are going to hold, that there's going to be some suffering. And even when he shows up to the promised land, he has to flee because there's a big famine. I mean, I would like a little more detail from God, but not Abraham. Abraham, in great faith, went day by day, step by step, following and listening to God's voice, going where God was telling him to go. If we want to have the kind of faith that Abraham did, then day by day, we need to listen to God's word. We need to seek to obey his word day by day, step by step, seeking to do all that we can to follow God, putting our faith in God each step along the way. So what is God calling us to do today? Well, I know we're not here yet in our reading in uh, the Gospel of Mark, but I'm going to give you a little bit of heads up on Jesus has asked a very important question in Mark chapter 12, he has an encounter with a uh, scribe, and he asks this question, the Mark 12, we read in 28, it says, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important commandment of all? And here's Jesus' answer, this is real important, most important commandment, Mark 12, 29. Jesus answered, the most important is Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all our heart and with all our, our understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the last test that Jesus has by the scribes. And he, he answers it so well, he blows them away. He's like, hey, the most important commandment is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the, the Jews knew that. They would post the Shema on their door. But the second commandment is in Leviticus 19. I don't know when the last time you read Leviticus, but Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. 
Jesus does us a great favor here, and, and as a, a child of Cliff Notes, do you all remember Cliff Notes in the 80s? I used to read those. Didn't have to always read the whole book. You can just read the Cliff Notes. He gives us the Cliff Notes because in the Old Testament, there's 613 commandments. Can anyone here recite all 613 commandments? Anybody? I can't. I went to seminary. In fact, I don't even know them all. I've, I've read them, but I don't know what they all are because it's just too much to know, too much information. But Jesus takes all that and goes down to two. Love God with all that you are. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the next right thing for you and me to do each and every day, day by day, step by step. We should simply ask the Lord, Lord, help me to love God with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength. Lord, help me to love you well today, and help me to love my neighbor as well. Yes, Jesus makes it real clear that life isn't that complicated. We just need to follow him and do what he did, loving God and loving our neighbor as ourself. And how did Jesus love his neighbor? Well, it's interesting to me in this text, you may have noticed that when God calls uh, Abraham to go to Mount Moriah and to a hill that he will show him, Mount Moriah is actually where current day uh, Jerusalem is located. In fact, the rock where he tried to almost sacrifice Isaac, where he ended up sacrificing a ram instead, is, uh, is where the dome of the rock is located. It's a place of worship now for, for Muslims. Of course, Jews and Christians recognize it as a holy site as well there in Jerusalem. And notice the refrain that Abraham says to, to uh, Isaac. He says, God will provide the sacrifice that's needed. And God does, in fact, provide that sacrifice in that ram. But that ram is an imperfect sacrifice. As all animal sacrifices of the Old Testament were imperfect. But that God sent his son, Jesus, who John the Baptist says is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world, the Lamb without blemish, the perfect one, who lived in perfect obedience to our Heavenly Father. And then he died on a, on a cross, on a hill, just outside Jerusalem, on Golgotha, so that our sins might be atoned for once and for all. And then on the third day, he rose again, conquering both sin and death on our behalf, so that we might have the full assurance of eternal life, that we might have the gift of a new life if we simply turn to him in faith. Yes, Jesus shows us what it means to love our neighbor by sacrificially putting the needs of others before our own. As he will say in the Sermon on the Mount, treat others the way that you would like to be treated. So every day, if we want to grow in our faith and have the kind of faith like Abraham did, we want to pray. We want to spend time reading and hearing God's Word and doing what it calls us to do. And what God's Word ultimately calls us to do in gratitude for His love for us is to love God and love our neighbor as ourself. Please join me as you pray. <clears throat> Gracious and loving God, I thank you that as we've turned to your word this morning, we see this powerful story of Abraham, a man of great faith, who had the faith to do the unthinkable, even willing to sacrifice his own son, because he loved you, God, more than anything else. And he knew that because you had said Isaac was the son of the promise, that somehow you were going to bring Isaac back. Even if he killed him, you're going to bring him back. I pray, Lord, that we might have the kind of faith that Abraham did, trusting your word, loving you first and foremost above anything else, allowing your love to ultimately define us so that we might be a conduit of your love out of gratitude for what you've done for us. Help us to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and help us to love our neighbors, ourselves by putting their needs before our own, by treating them the way that we would like to be treated, to the glory of your name. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son, who is the Christ, and all God's people said, Amen.